Um, but I think yeah. that would be irresponsible. So we'll, uh, we'll read the Beatitudes, and uh, we probably won't get through them. Matthew records for us, and seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you for the season that you've given us as you've placed it in time by your son, his coming. We're grateful that it reminds us, and Lord, it brings us together to instruct our children to worship you for your goodness. But Lord, it hasn't been a wonderful season for all of us. And um, so Lord, I pray that you would be with Tom's family, um, that you would encourage their hearts in spite of their loss and their grief. I pray that they would be comforted by the fact that not only did Tom belong to you, but that Tom is with you and he's rejoicing in your presence. And and he too is looking forward to the second coming, uh, which he'll participate in. And so I pray that you give courage to his family, Lord. Lord, I thank you that um, in the sledding accident that you spared Lucy's life and that she's recovering and doing well. And uh, just pray that she would be strengthened and, and that all of her family's fears would be relieved and, and they would just be rejoicing and all of that. And Lord, uh, Lord we, we ask for Lori's sake that you would um, just grant mercy to her heart, her body that she would be strong and that her heart would begin to uh, behave normally and that she could get back to normal. pray that you'd minister to her and her family during this time. Grant them your grace, Lord, and reassure them of your promises and, and direct their hope to you, we pray. And Lord, we also rejoice with Maggie. Um, Lord, it's just sweet meeting with her, speaking with her and the attitude she has and constantly asking for the list of those that she can pray for in our church as she struggles with her own thing. But I'm blessed by her example and uh, how she has weathered all that she's endured. And I pray that you would continue to grant that cheerful spirit to her spirit of faith and optimism. But Lord, we do pray that she would just recover and be strong. So bless her, we pray. And, and Lord, I thank you for all of your teaching, the Sermon on the Mount and so many other amazing sermons. I pray that, Lord, you would instruct our hearts and uh, that you would use it all for the purpose for which you designed. And that as a result, we would be conformed further into your image. So thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, be seated if you would. How many of you guys read ahead the Sermon on the Mount? Good job. Good job. Very impressive. 
It doesn't count if you read it a year ago or two years ago. I mean, like recently. Okay. All right. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> All right. Well, before we just, you know, dive into this particular sermon, I think it would be good to, you know, kind of explore some of the context and historical context, the purpose, uh, I would say even pitfalls regarding Jesus's message. Um, encountered some really interesting ideas over the years regarding the Sermon on the Mount and uh, where it belongs, and who it was, who's obligated to it, um, who's not obligated to it, uh, all kinds of interesting stuff. I'll bring some of that into the text for you this morning. But among all of Jesus's sermons, and, and there are a number of them, but there's, uh, there's really two large ones, but this is really, I would say, the Sermon of Sermons. Amen? Sermon of sermons. And some people say, well, it wasn't one sermon, but it's, it's pieced together and uh, all of that. I'm not sure I agree. It says that he sat down on a level place on the mountain and he taught. And uh, he wasn't done teaching until Matthew 7. Uh, I actually think that the sermon was probably much longer and that we got the highlights. So, uh, And there are some long sermons in the Bible. Uh, Paul preached so long he killed somebody one time. And, uh, yeah, there's two sermons, I think, that, that stand out or that are noteworthy. And, of course, it's the one that's before us this morning. The other one being the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 through 25. And two sermons could not be more different. Uh, probably the, the, the only common thing among them is the one who, who taught them. Uh, the first here, as we're looking at, has to do with how uh, God's people uh, ought to live as citizens of the kingdom unless you're of that persuasion where you don't think this applies to you at all. Um, I disagree with you, by the way. But his Olivet Discourse isn't so much an issue of morality, but it looks ahead, addressing the things to come, which prepares those who will suffer through the events, what to expect, how and how long they must persevere. Uh, Sort of like we find Daniel in Babylon, who understood both the nature and duration of Israel's captivity by reading the prophet Jeremiah in Daniel chapter 9. So the Sermon on the Mount regards the morality of heaven, whereas the Olivet Discourse deals with the justice of heaven, at least the initial justice before the final justice of heaven. The content of the Olivet Discourse, which we'll get to, uh, is more challenging to interpret, but the moral demands of the Sermon on the Mount are insurmountable. You would know if you had read it. And so teaching the Sermon on the Mount is a bit intimidating. It's one thing to teach and to understand Jesus' demands, uh, but as you know, it's another thing to live according to them, right? Yeah. I once saw a sign that read this, real Christians obey the Sermon on the Mount, okay? <laughs> you know, at the heart of this statement is either a zeal that is void of knowledge or it's rooted in an ugly self-righteousness and uh, I met them. It's the latter. (laughs) It's the latter. A more reasonable statement that would be consistent with reality, by way of honesty, would read something like, real Christians, for the glory of God, long for the day when the Sermon on the Mount describes the kind of life they live. The Spirit of God in us would, you know, motivate us toward that. We can aspire to it. We can hope for it. But then we read things like, 
in the Sermon on the Mount that whosoever breaks one of the least of the commands, not one of the greatest, but one of the least of the commands, and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, we have hindsight on the scribes and the Pharisees, but for the Jews living in Israel, they were the pinnacle of spirituality and righteousness. So when Jesus said that, well, it's no way to begin a sermon, but I'm going to have to begin the same way because I have my example before me. But he also said he made things worse right in the middle of his sermon when he says, therefore, be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. James wrote, for whoever shall keep the whole law yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all of it. One theologian describes the law of God as a, a, a chain of ten links, and everybody dangles from the bottom link over hell. And it doesn't matter which link is broken. What happens to the dangler? He ceases to dangle. Okay. Only ignorance or arrogance or both would say something like real Christians keep the Sermon on the Mount. The only real Christian that ever obeyed the Sermon on the Mount was the one that preached it. And for good reason. Uh, yeah, The rest of us are guilty of violating its most basic principles, and not simply on one or two occasions, but throughout our days on earth. It's a mistake to think something like that. Another common mistake that people make concerning the Sermon on the Mount is, is why they believe it follows in sequence with what John and Jesus were preaching prior to the sermon. You know, they, John and Jesus, came preaching repentance because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. That's true. And this was followed by the command that people should uh, live a life that was consistent with repentance. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. So repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand and bear fruit worthy of repentance. Now live your life that is consistent with that repentance. And then here we see Jesus describing and teaching how it is that citizens of heaven, of the kingdom, ought to live. And that most definitely would be consistent with repentance. So here's the mistake that people make. They conclude then that if we repent by turning away from living like the citizens of the world and then start living like the citizens of heaven, as Jesus prescribes in the Sermon on the Mount, everything will be all right. In other words, if I do step one and two, I'll be accepted into the kingdom. No, you will not. You will not. This is legalism at its finest. Just educate man properly and sufficiently, and then provide him with a list of things to do, and he can save himself. That's moralism. Not only is it legalism, it reduces Jesus to nothing more than a moral teacher, eliminating the necessity of his death for the sinner. You understand? If this were true, Jesus didn't need to die for the sins of the world. He just needed to point us in the right direction so we could take care of the rest. I remember him doing that at Mount Sinai. How well did it go? It didn't go well. You guys read that part, right? The first generation died in the wilderness. The next generation rebelled in Canaan. And then all of their children rebelled until God threw them out of Canaan. And then he led them back into Canaan. He, he cured them of idolatry. But then they became steeped in legalism and self-effort. You cannot educate man properly and sufficiently and then let him handle the rest. They'll kill each other. Okay? They'll self-destruct. The history of the world, whether Jewish 
or pagan is the history of failure. And so with the Sermon on the Mount, we think we'll just give it another go. We can do better than them. That's the epitome of arrogance. Just give it another go. Nothing else worked thus far, but maybe this this will work. But why wouldn't it? You know, isn't Jesus the teacher of teachers? Isn't he the best teacher that has ever lived? Can't his instruction get us there? No, it cannot. His instruction cannot get us there. You think there was a different instructor at Mount Sinai than there is on the, this, with the Sermon on the Mount, wherever this mountain was? It's not a different teacher. It's the same teacher. The problem with that question isn't that it elevates Jesus. It's the blasphemous implication behind it. It elevates man. It elevates man, assuming that man can be rehabilitated that he can simply change his ways and it will be sufficient. Now, I know that Western culture thinks that. We can give man the proper counselor, enough rehab, and so forth, and we'll fix all of the problems that the West has. Um, since the advent of therapy, psychotherapy, and all of the other stuff, has America improved in its psychology? It's gotten far worse because it teaches humanism. It teaches moralism. It's crazy. It's blasphemous to assume that man can do it, that he can be rehabilitated, that he can simply change his ways and it be sufficient. In philosophy, this is called a red herring. How many of you guys are familiar with that? It's a distraction, a distraction, which takes your eyes away from the real problem so that you cannot see the only solution. It's like in the training of bird dogs. You know, it's essential that they learn or discipline themselves to stay on scent and not get distracted by other scents that are appetizing to them. And there's a lot of nasty stuff that a, a dog finds appetizing. In order to form this discipline in the dog, hunters long ago would put the scent of the bird on the trail. But before they put their dog on the scent of the bird, they would drag a rotten red herring across the trail, leading in another direction. Ugh. This would test the discipline of the dog. Would he stay on the scent of the bird or would he get distracted and go after the, the nasty red herring that goes the other direction? You know, Satan is a master of dragging things across our path, tempting us, appealing to our flesh to get us off course. He wants us to think that Jesus is simply introducing a new set of teachings or addressing or adding rather to the old teachings and saying, here you go, give that to try and everything will be fine. Actually, I, I would use that in evangelism just to show somebody how lost they are. You know, Paul says in Romans 3 that by the law is the knowledge of sin. By the law, sin becomes exceedingly sinful. You know, show the law to someone and they go, yeah, I'm pretty good. No, they look at the law and the whole idea of the law was to condemn man. Well, if I can do that with the Ten Commandments, I can do it much better with the Sermon on the Mount. Much better. Jesus isn't trying to give us a new set of rules to live by. He's not trying to add to the old. Jesus is actually doing something detrimental to human pride and arrogance. He intends, by the Sermon on the Mount, to crush our self-confidence. As the prophet Isaiah foretold, he says, when the Messiah comes, he's going to exalt the law and make it honorable. Isaiah 42, 21. Through Christ, the law would be elevated to its proper place. Well, why would he need to do that? Well, if you've read any of the Talmuds, which is Jewish commentaries on the law, you would go, oh. Because what they are always trying to do is trying to make the law 
possible to obey most of the time, unless it was the Sabbath, and then you just you can only lay in bed and not break the Sabbath. But what they were doing was they were diminishing the force and the authority of God's law to such a degree that it could hardly be called God's. And so Christ came to reestablish the perfect moral standard of the law. We'll explore that more when we get to verse 21. You know, as we venture through the sermon, it becomes evident to any honest and I believe any thinking person that Jesus places its demands beyond our grasp, beyond our grasp, like a cookie jar, even to the most ambitious and child. I mean, have you ever seen how creative children could be? Like if you ask them to get, hey, would you get a plate for me? Oh, I can't reach it. Well, there's a cookie on it. With all the potential ingenuity of a child, he can't not reach this cookie jar. All he can do is stand and gaze at the jar, longing for its contents. And every citizen of heaven aspires to the glories mentioned in the sermon. But at the present, he knows that he must enter glory before he is that spiritual. And so this particular sermon, instead of affirming our own self-righteousness, it strips it away and it exposes the corruption of man. How many of you guys like that experience? How many of you have encountered it when you read the teachings of Christ? I mean, don't you sometimes honestly read his teaching and go, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? The sermon, instead of affirming us, it's honest with us. The moral requirements of heaven disqualify every person from entering it and places us into a position where we must cry out to God for mercy. If there is no grace extended to us, we're done. And the Sermon on the Mount makes that most obvious. There's no amount of proper education that will get you through the door. No PhD. Only the blood of Christ can do that. You know, the very moment that Jesus addresses the quality of man's heart as a qualifying agent for entering the kingdom, we're shut out. We're shut out. This is God's evaluation of the human heart. It's not Jeremiah's. These are, this is God. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So the the most insurmountable problem for man is his heart. It's the malady found in his own nature. He's morally broken at the core. And so when he's confronted by the moral commands of Christ, he's both incapable and he's in grave danger. Danger of what? Well, God continues to speak in Jeremiah 17 saying, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Well, if he looks at this heart we got serious problems, right? Yeah. If God does what he says here, if he searches out the moral quality of a man's heart and mind, and he most certainly will, man lies under the threat of judgment. It doesn't matter how good he's behaved. It makes no difference. Unless, of course, God intervenes and intercepts us by some other means than our own righteousness and obedience. The wages of sin is death, and we are most certainly guilty of sin And what people fail to understand is there's no amount of good that we can do to erase the guilt of our past. No amount of keeping the Sermon on the Mount will do away with our past. If we repent today and live the rest of our life consistent with repentance, we haven't even begun. We haven't begun. It's a strange invention of a man who thinks that his good deeds can outweigh his bad deeds or that his benevolent living can somehow dismiss his malevolent past There's no such concept in Scripture. It hasn't even crossed God's mind. It would be a violation of his moral nature to dismiss man's past sins because of his present or even persistent good deeds. The past remains unresolved. 
in spite of what he's done. Sin is a cancer that contaminates and infects all that he does afterwards. Our past is something that justice cannot overlook. Justice can't bear its presence. So as we study the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not telling us, do these things and everything will be just fine. Jesus knows full well that the demands of heaven laid out in the sermon leave man condemned before God. It doesn't just doesn't really direct us to a moral high ground. It actually magnifies the degree of our destitution. Jesus is not telling us how to get to heaven. That's a terrible, terrible misunderstanding. He's revealing to us our proximity to heaven. It's farther away than we think. It's farther away than the most distant star. It's above us. It's, it's completely beyond us. And no amount of time or effort would afford us any progress. So don't confuse this sermon for other than it is. It is no roadmap to heaven. It's no 12-step program for success. Again, if you were able to meet all of its demands from here on out, you would still be excluded from heaven because of your past. Read Romans chapter 3. As important as obedience is, it's not enough to grant us citizenship in his kingdom. Even after three and a half years of the finest instruction the world had ever seen, Jesus still had to die on the cross for sins. He still had to take our place in judgment. Those who do good works but are not trusting in Christ for salvation, Paul says they're dead in their sins. They must be redeemed before their deeds count for anything at all. You guys get it. Let's look closer at the sermon. Up to this point, it's true, Jesus has been preaching repentance to prepare people for the the kingdom of heaven. But here in the sermon, he's teaching people how it is that citizens of the kingdom live. He's introducing the moral culture of the kingdom. Verse 3 through 11 are known as the Beatitudes. How many guys use Beatitudes in your vocabulary? All right. Every verse, we call it the Beatitudes because every verse begins with the word blessed. The whole sermon has been referred to as the edicts of the kingdom. But what is interesting is that in the first 12 verses, there are no edicts at all, at least not in the proper sense because no command is given. Every individual statement is a description. It's not a prescription. For example, instead of prescribing that we be poor in spirit, it may be implied, but he does not prescribe it. He doesn't prescribe that we mourn or that we be meek and so forth. Jesus just describes to us what the disposition of the poor in spirit is. He says they are blessed. And yeah, I'm going to pronounce the word blessed because I don't want it to be confused with how we use the word blessed. Okay? Usually we say that we're blessed and we're content okay? or We've been treated well, or God has provided something special for us. We say we were blessed, or they blessed us when they gave us something or did something for us. That's a legitimate use of the word. It's just not what it means here. So I'll say blessed to make a distinction. The word blessed is translated from the Greek word uh, makarioi, which means happy, happy. The Latin equivalent of the word is beatus, which also means happy, and that's where we get our word beatitude. It just sounds better than the blesseds or something. The word blessed means happy, and that's what it means. But today, I'm sure you've, been, uh, you've, you've endured some of this. We often hear Christians say that happiness comes from our happenings, good happenings, from our good experiences and circumstances. We're happy because things are good, and therefore we're sad when things are bad. I'm sure I've used that, uh, the word happy in that way because the way things are handed down to us, concepts, and the rest, it's just not biblically accurate, not according to Jesus. We say happiness is displayed on the outside 
on our faces and body language because of what has happened on the outside. If things are going well, we're happy. But joy, on the other hand, we say is on the inside and cannot be affected by what happens to us on the outside. Joy is steady through thick and thin, through the good times and the bad times. By these definitions, we make our distinction between happiness and joy. And I think there may be some value in it, but then what do we do with the Beatitudes? It's kind of hard to define happiness there. Because here in the first 12 verses, Jesus describes terrible circumstances on the outside, negative happenings, and he says that his people are happy in spite of it. And he doesn't use the Greek word for joy, which is kara, gladness. He uses the Greek word for happy. He says they're happy in spite of what happens on the outside. And even in the scripture, I would say that joy and happiness are distinct. But here in the sermon, happiness endures suffering, contrary to how we often define it in English. I think we should be careful uh, that we don't diminish the significance of what it is to be happy. Uh, Greek scholar A.T. Robertson says, it is a pity that we have not kept the word happy to the high and holy plane where Jesus placed it. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. He says, according to the glorious good news of the happy God, which was committed to my trust. That's 1 Timothy 1.11. Our translation says, the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Well, that's, that's good, but even that needs translated because no one knows what blessed means in English anymore, and it seems that less and less people know what the word gospel means. The passage in English means, though it's not translated this way, it means the glorious good news of the happy God. Tell me you don't like that. <laughs> Our God is happy. If you ask me, I prefer that my God is happy. What do you prefer? What are the alternatives? The grouchy God, the malevolent God. No, the psalmist constantly is sharing his preference that his God be happy. Psalm 4 and 31 and 89. He often pleads with the Lord to cause his face to shine. That is that his face would be displayed as a happy face upon his people that they might be saved. Who wants to see the face of a grouchy God that is almighty? Almighty grouchiness. I want my God to be happy. The priestly blessing, hope for God's happiness to be expressed to his people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his happy face to shine upon you and give you peace. I mean, if he showed you the grouchy face, could you have peace? No. We want our God happy. And we most certainly ourselves want to be happy, right? Happy, especially when things are difficult. We certainly do not want unhappiness to, under, to, to accompany our difficulties. That just adds insult to injury. Depression deepens our misery and robs us of hope. Isn't that true? We don't need anything to perpetuate misery. We need that which would lift us out of it. So we don't want to diminish the value of happiness, especially when it's sourced by the God of heaven. I'd say that those who truly know their God and are becoming like him through faith can enjoy happiness even when circumstances are miserable. An example of this, you remember Paul and Silas, they were in Philippi and they were falsely accused and then beaten with brass rods. Imagine that. How well do you think your ribs would stand up to brass rods? I know that it says they beat them in the book of Acts, but the Greek word is lictors. 
and the lictors were local government officials that were brass rod bearers. Little historical context for you. How many of you have been hit with a brass rod on purpose? I didn't think so. They beat Paul and Silas. So they're there in the stocks in the inner prison, and at midnight they sang songs, they sang hymns because they were upset. No, they served the happy God, and therefore they were happy. They were miserable, but they were happy. Now, when I say happy, I want to be clear. I don't mean silly or goofy. People can be happy and serious at the same time. There's a few of them in our church. A stoic person can be happy simultaneous to their lack of expression. And not everyone expresses, okay, displays happiness the same way as everyone else. Amen? I know that we like to say that person is not as happy as me because they're not as something on the outside. It's just not true. Um, I think that as I've grown older, I've become more stoic. But I think that I'm happier than ever. Does that make sense? Um, You know, I went to Winter Jam with the kids one time. And it's this ridiculous display of kids cheering and jumping and, and all of that. I'm just teasing. I don't think it's ridiculous. It's just not me. I can stand there and I'm hands in my pocket. I'm completely still and stoic and I'm enjoying it. But the kids don't think I am. But I try not to look at them and say, well, you're just being silly. But they're just expressing their joy. Okay, now, if I'm dancing, I'm completely unhappy. It's totally different. I feel like I'm in purgatory if I'm dancing. But I can watch people dance and I'm just, just fine. So, One of the interesting qualifications for a deacon is that he be grave that he be serious, reverent, and dignified. But according to Jesus, he also has to be happy. So he has to be gravely happy. It's true. Today, and probably next Sunday, maybe further, we're talking about happiness in spite of happenings. Jesus is. Happiness as a heavenly quality, descriptive of its citizens. The other thing that you'll notice about each of the Beatitudes is that each one ends with a promise. The blessed are promised various things like the kingdom of heaven, the comfort of God, the earth, to be filled with righteousness, to obtain mercy, to see God, to be called sons of God, to give them great reward in heaven. I don't even have time to continue. <laughs> Do we have time to get into the first one? Yeah, let's, let's at least introduce all this. Uh, verse 1, it says, And seeing Jesus, seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Now, real quick, in Luke's account, it says that Jesus stood on a level place as he was headed down the mountain, Luke 6, 17. The King James says that Jesus stood in the plain. Now, that's supposedly the same account. So how can Jesus be in the mountain and down on the plain? How can that happen? Which is it? Did he preach on a mountain or in the plain? Now, some have tried to solve the problem by saying that Jesus preached the same message twice. The first time he preached it on the mountain, and the second time he preached it down in the plain. Well, I don't think there's any reason to make a distinction. Uh, Jesus preached the sermon once. It was on the mountain, not on a cliff, but on a level spot on the mountain. Okay? How many of you guys have been on a mountain that has a level spot? Okay, well, not all mountains look like this. Okay? And not all mountains are like volcanoes, like around here. Okay, most mountains do this, okay? There's plenty of flat spots to gather a crowd and preach from, okay? 
If you've always lived in the plain, if you're from Nebraska, that might confuse you. Okay? But those that know the mountains know there's plenty of places where you can gather people and preach a sermon. Okay? It, it's, it's fine. So the Sermon on the Mount took place on a level spot on the mountain. Problem solved. Let's move on. It says that Jesus sat down. Okay, that was customary for the rabbis. The people were used to being taught this way. It says, then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Now, last time we were together, we pointed out the difference between preaching and teaching. At this point, Jesus is clearly teaching. He is unpacking. He's explaining what it is to live in the kingdom of heaven, how it is that people live for this king. Please note, before we look in detail at each beatitude, we need to understand that Jesus is not saying that only one beatitude is true of one person. I think we have a tendency to look through here and go, well, that one's for me, that one's for someone else. Okay, That one could potentially be true of me, which we always pick the easiest one. And then we say, but the other ones, that could be true of someone else. Jesus isn't saying that. He's saying that all of these is consistent with all of the citizens of heaven. You get it? It's for everyone. It should be true of every citizen that is in the kingdom. Some people say, no, well, for every beatitude, there's another verse in the New Testament or even an entire section or chapter that calls every Christian to be pure in spirit, James 4.10, to mourn, Romans 12.14, to be meek, Galatians 5.23, to desire righteousness, 2 Peter 1.5-7, to be merciful, James 3.17, to be pure in heart, 1 Timothy 5, to be a peacemaker, 1 Peter 3.11, to suffer for righteousness sake, 2 Timothy 3.12, to suffer slander for Jesus' sake, 1 Peter 4.4. So you can't slide under these because as soon as you do you'll encounter another passage of scripture that says this should be indicative of your life we all understand that okay so he is each of these is talking to all of us and the beauty is is that because it's speaking to all of us the promise that is at the end of each of those is also to us amen the promises of god in christ jesus are to us, yes, and they are amen. And I have to leave out now. I was going to take you through the Beatitudes, but I promise you, let's pray. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray.